Hey everyone, I want to thank you for joining me for episode 30 of the Mark Guy Show. Now this, the topic of today's show is going to be something I should have talked about last week. I wanted to put out another episode, but life got in the way. I ended up having things going on pretty much every night through the end of last week and through the weekend. So it had to wait till Monday night. This is news that came out now over a week ago, uh, but I really wanted to get that last episode out about the... Uh, the UK anti-encryption laws, the Italian referendum, um, and the war on cash in India. I thought those were all important topics that I wanted to cover right away. But today I'm going to hit something else that I really need to talk about because I have a previous episode that this is going to refer to a lot that this is kind of an extension of due to new news that has come out. And that that is my episode about the Dakota Access Pipeline. And as I explained in that episode, I live in North Dakota. This has been probably the biggest piece of news in North Dakota in a long time. It's, it's really put North Dakota on the national stage. And a lot has happened throughout the story. It's it's easy to look at it as a David versus Goliath type of story where David is the Native American tribes and the protesters, and Goliath is the oil companies and the powers that be that want this pipeline to get done. And I understand trying to look at things in a simplistic lens that way. And it's instinctive to want to side with David. But as I explained in my last episode, David isn't always right. Sometimes Goliath is right and you should stand on Goliath's side, despite our every, you know, our every instinct to want to go in the other direction. So the new news that came out, and this was on, I believe, the fourth. So saying it was over over a week ago, uh, the fifth, I think, either the fourth or fifth. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers said last Sunday that it it turned down a permit for uh, for easement to go underneath the Missouri River. So basically, what the Standing Rock Tribe and all the other protesters had been out fighting against, they won at least temporarily, and at least delayed. Probably the inevitable. I think it probably eventually will happen. An easement eventually will be granted, but maybe it won't be close to the tribe. Maybe it'll be pushed back further up toward Bismarck. And that's where they'd originally wanted to put the pipeline closer to Bismarck, but the environmental impact studies basically said that it it should move further down the river, further south, further away from Bismarck, uh, further away from that population center. And this was kind of the the site that was agreed upon by most involved. Now, of course, the Standing Rock Tribe doesn't say that that they approved. They didn't really participate in the meetings leading up to when this all was approved because there was a lot of community outreach. And I'm actually impressed at how much there was done by this. And, of course, it's probably impossible to satisfy everybody. But I don't want to rehash the points that I made in the previous episode, which I will refer to in the suggested readings referenced articles portion of uh, of the website page so basically the obama administration had delayed making a decision on this twice before had delayed saying whether or not they were going to grant an easement uh, uh to to cross underneath the missouri river twice before and now they've finally reached a point where they had to make a decision one way or another and they basically said alternative routes need to be considered well, this has happened. They've already considered a lot of alternate routes. This is what was agreed upon. This is where, you know, all of the private property, all of the voluntary easements were were agreed upon beforehand. And 
my biggest issue with this, I talk a lot on this podcast about the inefficiencies of, of government getting involved in, in the majority of industries and how it can be dangerous and it can distort actual market forces. But if it's going to happen, if, if you're going to have government interference, at least let it be consistent and predictable. This is not consistent and predictable. This is changing the rules on companies. And people like to act like you can just change the rules and nothing's going to change and nobody's going to react to incentives. But when you're talking about a project of this magnitude, about a 1,200-mile pipeline, costing a whopping nearly $4 billion, somewhere between $3.5 and $4 billion based on the sources that I have. This is a humongous project. And think about a multi-billion dollar investment, all the different parties that have to come together. How much really is at stake? And when you make that kind of investment, there needs to be some sort of predictability of, okay, this is the amount of government government interference that I can expect. These are about the costs that I'm going to need to handle this government interference. And as long as that's predictable and consistent, like I said, it doesn't pose nearly as big of a problem as when the rules are constantly changing. But what's happening here is the rules are changing. And even a delay of, say, six months on this project can make the difference between profit and loss, can make the difference between a project being viable in terms of rate of of return or not being viable due to not earning a a robust enough rate of return to be worth that initial multi-billion dollar investment. So the Obama administration here is really setting a bad precedent. It's not like this is new. These kind of things happen all the time, and the rules are constantly changing. So I'm not, I, I don't want to say this is something completely new, but it's something that we should be critical of and that we should be talking about. I haven't really seen anybody making that kind of connection to how does this apply to other projects and how in the future are companies going to be less willing to make huge investments in the American economy because they're not sure if the rules are going to change. Will instead these multi-billion dollar projects be going to Canada or be going to South America or be going to China or be going to, to Western Europe or you know who knows where the property rights and the really the rules of the game are more consistent for businesses to put money. In a globalized economy, it's quite easy compared to how it used to be to now put that money to work elsewhere. This money does not need to st- stay in the United States. They do not need to, to conduct projects in the United States. There are plenty of other countries around the world with secure property rights and with more consistent rule of law and more consistent rules of the game where these parties can put their money in the future. And I think this is setting a bad precedent for the future. What people want to talk about is like this is just, we should just look at this in a vacuum that this is just an isolated incident. We need to talk about just this pipeline and whether or not this pipeline is going to get done and just the concerns of the Standing Rock tribe. But it's much bigger than that. It's not just about the Standing Rock tribe, and it's not just about this pipeline. It's about, is this going to be an economy? Is this going to be a country where people want to invest their money? Because If you're investing your money, you're expecting a rate of return. You're expecting a return on that investment in that economy. And you can easily go elsewhere and find a rate of return that isn't as prone to the rules of the game changing like they seem to be in the United States. 
And when following this story and seeing what happened with the easement being denied, I was, I, I first thought of the idea of regime uncertainty or policy uncertainty and Bob Higgs's work on how he believes that is what caused the Great Depression to last for so long. So private investment was lacking during that long period of time because FDR and the New Dealers were consistently changing the rules of the game. Private property rights were not secure. You didn't know if the rules now when I'm making this large initial investment are going to be the same in the future. So I'm just going to refrain from making any investment because I can't risk losing that large upfront investment. And that applies perfectly to this project where it's a huge upfront cost, multi-billion dollar project, and you're expecting a return on that over a long period of time. But if the rules of the game could change and say uh, the pipeline could be nationalized or that's obviously extreme, but you're not going to make that, that $4 billion investment because you could potentially lose the entire thing. And you'd much rather make smaller, safer investments where there's a more guaranteed rate of return, but the the risk isn't quite as high or the, the period of payoff isn't quite as long. You'll probably look shorter term rather than, than longer term. So Bob Higgs's work is great on this. And I pulled up um, one of one of his papers on this. I just wanted to, to read a little bit to kind of give a historical reference point to why this should scare us, why policy and regime uncertainty should scare us. So this is a quote. I shall argue here that the economy remained in the depression as late as 1940 because private investment had never recovered sufficiently after its collapse during the Great Great Contraction. And this is me interjecting. The Great Contraction, who's talking about, was the, the initial part of the Great Depression. So right after the crash of 1929 through I believe he gives a demarcation 1932 or 1933, and then the Great Contraction is that long period of time afterwards prior to World War II. Uh, During the war, private investment fell to much lower levels, and the federal government itself became the chief investor, directing investment into building up the nation's capacity to produce munitions. After the war ended, private investment, for the first time since the 1920s, rose to and remained at levels sufficient to create a prosperous, normally growing economy. I shall argue further that the insufficiency of private investment from 1935 through 1940 reflected a pervasive uncertainty among investors about the security of their property rights in their capital and its prospective returns. This uncertainty arose, especially though not exclusively, from the character of federal government actions and the nature of the Roosevelt administration during the so-called Second New Deal from 1935 to 1940. Starting in 1940, the makeup of FDR's administration changed substantially as pro-businessmen began to replace dedicated New Dealers in many positions, including most of the offices of high authority in the war command economy. So I won't read beyond that, but basically saying the reason why we started to come out of the Great Depression was because the the dedicated New Dealers were pushed out of positions of power. Uh, But those last few sentences there talking about pervasive uncertainty among investors about the security of their property rights and their capital and its prospective returns. That is exactly what I thought about when this story first broke. And when the Obama administration over my entire time following the story has seemed sympathetic to continually delaying, not giving a concrete answer, not giving the investors the information they need in order to, you know, have any sort of predictive ability to, to determine what kind of payments am I going to expect? When am I going to expect 
or when can I expect returns to come to me? And this is not going to make people more likely to invest in the United States. An investment in productive capacity is what this country really needs if we want to see standards of living continue to rise. If we want to see wages rise, that's what we need. We don't need all of this tinkering around the edges with minimum wage laws that don't do anything and, and just make the matter worse. Um, those kind of things do not help real wages rise. They do not. What, what will help is making this country a place where, where individuals, businesses, investors want to put their money, want to put their money to increasing productive capacity, and that will thus raise the standards of living for all. So the Obama administration, I think, is towing a very fine line here, and I do hope that when Donald Trump comes into office, he authorizes the rest of this pipeline to be built. It's not really about the pipeline for me. It's because I want, I want the rule of law, I want the rules of the game to be consistent across the board, and I don't want these ideological identity politics brought into the equation. It does not matter to me that one group of people in this battle is a Native American tribe. And it does not matter that the other side of this of this battle is a large oil company or large oil companies. That does not matter to me. We should not be making decisions based on the identities of the particular groups. That's one of the biggest things that's impacting American politics and turning people off from the mainstream of American politics is because it's all turned into how much oppression can you claim and that somehow is supposed to contribute to the validity of your message or of your point. But I don't want to allow that to, to impact our, uh, our decision-making at this point in time. You know, we're past the point where, so, where somebody being a Native American or belonging to a Native American tribe gives them special preference over somebody else. I don't want to live in a country where we have these preferential policies, where different groups of people are treated differently due solely to things that happened hundreds of years ago, where none of the people currently alive were alive when those things happened. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I don't think I really addressed that in my, in my prior episode. I wanted to kind of stick to the facts. I didn't want to really discuss the history of Native Americans in the United States, but we need to stop acting like this is something unique. Like the United States is unique from other countries. Like what happened to the Native Americans is unique from what has happened to people all throughout human history. Unfortunately, you know, I wish I could unchange or I wish I could go back and change it, but human history is a history of conquests. You go back over time, it's empire after empire after empire. It's groups of people taking over a particular land, then those groups being run off that land. It's groups being absorbed into a large empire, and then that empire falling apart, and these people finally getting some self-determination, then getting taken over by another empire. That's what's happened time and time again. And everybody here of European descent, their ancestors over in Europe have been part of this too. You know, white people have not dominated the world over all of uh, over all of human history, and very far from the point. I mean, if if you look at the United States, if you look at America, and how it was originally populated primarily by English colonists, I'm I'm talking about minus the indigenous people, but the original Europeans that came over were primarily British. 
and if you look at the history of Britain, and I'm taking a quote from Thomas Sowell's Conquests and Cultures, for about one-fifth of its recorded history, Britain was a conquered country, a province of the Roman Empire, and one of the more backward provinces at that. Men from other provinces ruled over Britain, but Britons did not rule other provinces. One measure of the backwardness of pre-Roman Britain was the ease with which it was conquered by greatly outnumbered Roman soldiers and held in subjugation, despite a massive and desperate uprising in 61 AD. The Romans were simply far better equipped and far better organized. In many other ways as well, the Romans represented a much more advanced civilization than existed in Britain at that point in history. Indeed, after the Romans withdrew from Britain four centuries later, the Britons began to retrogress, and in many respects it was centuries after that before Britain regained the economic, social, or cultural levels it had reached as a province of the Roman Empire. So the first part of that is is the most important, but the British were a backward people prior to being conquered by the Roman Empire. Now you can say whether that was a good or bad thing that they were conquered by the Roman Empire. I'm not here to make that sort of judgment call, but the British people have a history of being conquered. And of course, yes, they ended up advancing and becoming one of the powers of the world and then conquering other people. But that's how human history has gone. The conquered have become have become the conquerors. And then the conquerors have again become the conquered. That is what happens. And in the United States, the Native Americans, they were constantly at war with each other. There was not static land. There were not... Uh, groups and tribes that lived in the same land over their entire time in um, in current day United States, there just weren't. It was they were constantly at war with each other. There were conquests within that culture. Of course, there weren't really people coming in from abroad. Of course, because of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans kind of preventing Europe and Asia from meddling in in North America. But with each other, they were constantly at war. And there were some very warlike tribes. There were some less warlike tribes. But the history of Native Americans also is one of conquests. So I wanted to pull another uh, another country. I just kind of picked one at random from Eurasia and look at the history of that, of that country and how, how many different groups of people have ruled it. And I picked Turkey, kind of you know, right in the middle, kind of the bridge between Europe and Asia. And so Turkey, just in my in my quick rundown of who is who has controlled that area. So first it was controlled by hunter gatherers in the Paleolithic era, then Anatolian peoples, various peoples populated it during antiquity, then Alexander the Great conquered it. Uh, then there's a period of time where it was, it was contested between the Romans and uh, the Parthians, and so they were constantly warring back and forth for control of Turkey. Then the Byzantine Empire had control of Turkey, then the Seljuk Empire had control of Turkey, then the Mongol Empire conquered it, then the Ottoman Empire conquered it, and then out of the Ottoman Empire came the Republic of Turkey. So Turkey, just this one area kind of picked at random, has been controlled by a multitude of different peoples. Constantly, the conquerors become the conquered, then the conquered rise up and become the conquerors again. And that is human history. And I know it's not it's not pretty and it's not necessarily fun to go back and look at human history and it's something that we shouldn't be proud of necessarily, but history is history. And what's happened in the United States with European settlers and the Native Americans that were here, that is what has happened on every continent in 
every stage of uh, in every stage of human history. And of course, as firearms became more prevalent, it became faster and, and easier probably to do that. If you had a, a group of people with firearms and one without, it became much faster to do so to conquer those people than it was previously when you were relying on on swords and other manual weapons. But the idea remains the same. And I don't think I don't think that talking about American history as being one, you know, built on the backs of the subjugation of Native American and African peoples. I, I don't think that's really doing anybody any favors because it's allowing for certain groups in the United States to continue to claim victimhood despite not being alive when any of that happened, despite having access to the most affluent society on the planet, despite all of these things, still talking about things that happened hundreds of years ago when they were not alive and anybody that they're talking to or that they're battling with also was not alive. It doesn't do anybody any good. And this victimhood from their end is harmful and the victimhood or the the sense of, pity that that whites seem to or that a, a, a large portion of the white population seems to want to exhibit toward other certain groups in American society I think it doesn't do them any good either because it causes them to not treat people equally and it causes them to see some people as being basically without agency or not being able to make their own destiny and not being able to take advantage of of all the many opportunities that we have in American society regardless of of your background regardless of the color of your skin there are lots of opportunities out there for everybody so i think this whole victimhood mentality talking about how america was built off the backs of of subjugated peoples is harmful rhetoric and i watched a video from the young turks which i don't know if i've ever talked really about the young turks on this but they are very frustrating to watch and the video I saw, it was on a page called The Young Turks Jordan Sheridan Goes Undercover to See Just How Much the North Dakota Media is Misinforming About No Dapple. So he goes and he's in a Walmart in Bismarck interviewing three guys probably about my age, probably in their early 20s, maybe even late teens, and is asking them what they think about No Dapple, about about the pipeline, about the interactions between police and, and the protesters and all of that. And these guys, you know, they don't seem to know a ton about the issue, but they they know enough. They're talking about how, uh, about kind of the structure of the pipeline and why they think, or one of them, one of them says that he thinks that the protests are kind of pointless, that the project's going to go through anyways. Another one said, yeah, they have the right to be out there, but I do think it's probably going to go through anyways. But the Young Turks tries to twist this into saying that because these guys hold this position or hold these positions, that it means that the North Dakota media must be biased or must be feeding them BS. A quote from this article, to be clear, the individuals that Sheridan interviewed are not stupid or uneducated. They are merely misinformed by a local media with an agenda. If they aren't exposed to the native side of the issue, how can they fairly judge the ongoing struggle? Well, I think what the local media has been doing in North Dakota has been playing the opposite role from the media across the country the national media because the national media seems to want to point at this as being oil companies large oil companies exploiting native peoples that's how they want to frame this issue and what the local media has been doing is saying it's it's far more complicated than that here are 
the facts on the ground, not just looking at David versus Goliath. I think the local media, have they been perfect? Certainly not, but they have presented both sides of the issue. And I think that the people in North Dakota, not due to the media, but due to just what they've gathered about this project and, and about the protests, tend to be more on the side of, let's get this done. The protests are a distraction. That was the that was the site that was agreed upon as being the area of least environmental impact and furthest away from population centers. Um, you know, all the due diligence seems to have been done from everything that I've read, and that's kind of the, the general sentiment around North Dakota is this project should go through, and delaying it isn't doing anybody any favors. And I agree with what these guys say, that the protests really do lack direction, and they they lack any sort of discussion about all the facts of this case. They're, pro, they're, they're basically framing it as, we need to protect our water at all costs, not talking about, well, obviously they're not going to do this because it hurts their case, in my opinion, but the actual facts of this case are, oil's going to be transported through this area anyways, and the way it's currently being transported is less safe than a pipeline. Being transported on rail cars is very dangerous relative to the dangers posed by a pipeline. So yes, I mean, these guys saying that the that the protests don't really seem to be unified, don't really have a central message, it's, it's very true. And you have all these people coming in from out of state that don't really have any sort of vested interest in what's going on. They don't understand the, the facts of what's going on on the ground. They're just coming in because, like I've said many times, it's a David versus Goliath type of thing for them, and they want to come and support David. But just the way that this is framed, that anybody that holds these positions must have just been taken advantage of by a local by local media with a bias, rather than looking inwardly and seeing, you know what, the Young Turks has an ideological uh has a huge ideological bias and they're going to frame an issue in whatever way best suits them. That's going to be how they do things. And that's how generally news works, especially a news outlet like them. They're not going out and getting the objective truth. Just like you're not getting the objective truth on my show. You know, I'm commentating and I certainly have a certain way that I think about things. And so I'm going to approach things from with kind of that bias in mind. But you know what you're getting coming here. But when the Young Turks tries to go out and tries to frame things as, well, we're going out and we're, we're rooting out bias. We're going, and the local media bias obviously is behind why people think this way. Rather than realizing some people just think this way. They're presented the facts. That's going to be the position that they hold. It does not mean that they have, sh- I think the title of this video called it shameful what the North Dakota media has been doing. And I think that's a ridiculous position to take. And just yet another example of why the Young Turks is an embarrassing news outlet. It really is. Watching the meltdown as uh, as the election results came in was priceless. I talked about in my in my post-election episodes about Trump's victory, that it was almost worth it, this entire campaign, and how difficult it was to just to watch it and see these really are our two choices. This is really, it's between Trump and Hillary Clinton. But to see all of their reactions after lapping it up for for Hillary Clinton, seeing Trump come out on top when they were so confident of a Hillary victory, it, it was almost worth it at that point. 
now of course we got our challenges we've got challenges of our own now approaching a Donald Trump presidency and seeing the the cabinet appointments that he's made and some okay some concerning uh, probably not what most of his supporters were expecting he he did run Mitt Romney through the ringer which I thought was pretty great to watch as well to see Romney squirm and basically beg for that secretary of state seat and then for Trump to go elsewhere that was also good to see Mitt Romney uh, get a little bit of what was coming to him I guess um, and to see another establishment Republican getting it thrown back in his face but I'm still very concerned about a, a Trump presidency despite him pissing off many of the people that I would like to see pissed off so this is gonna be a story to continue to monitor uh, the the whole dapple the protests the protests don't seem to be stopping because they know that this is just kind of delaying it yet again like the Obama administration has done before yes they currently denied the easement but now the army uh, the Army Corps of Engineers is talking about exploring other alternatives which has been done before so this is all political this is all to cater to a particular uh, to a particular ideology basically and I think Obama is just trying to push it off onto Trump so that he's got to be the one that makes the tough decision to to go forward with the pipeline so that he's the one that has to take all the political backlash when this project finally gets done I think that's what's happening here ultimately it will get done but I wanted to talk more about I think the broader implications of basically having the executive branch of the federal government be able to change the rules on businesses making particular investments and how I think it's going to hurt investment moving forward and how that's something that we should all be scared of no matter really where you are in the income distribution or the ideological uh, political distribution I think it should concern everybody because if you're at the lowest end of the wage scale investment is is good for you it raises wages it gives you more job opportunities then obviously for for somebody at the upper end of the income distribution it gives you more opportunities to invest your money hopefully earn a higher rate of return on your capital and more opportunities to keep your money here in the United States where it can go toward creating more jobs go toward improving standards of living for all so I think that's where this discussion needs to go but I haven't really seen anybody talking about it in that way uh, so thank you very much for listening. I'm hoping to have another episode out later this week, hopefully. I'm not sure exactly what topic I'm going to go with, uh, so I'm not going to give any sort of hints there because I'm, I'm honestly not sure at this point. Please go out and subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, Blueberry, whatever other podcast aggregator you use. I would love to see those, those uh, subscription numbers continue to go up, and if you don't have access on your particular podcast aggregator of choice please let me know i will get it out there i want this to be widely available so thank you for your support and have a great rest of your week